demais. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Maids, where we will help you learn to invest in 15 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Uh, I've got to say, the intro doesn't really hold for this one. This episode is going to be a little bit more than 15 minutes. You are correct. (laughs) None of this 15 (laughs) minutes or less. True, true. And the reason for that is because uh, we're, we're bringing you an expert investor, uh, one of the interview series that we do. Uh, and Ren, I would have to say that um, I'll let you do a bit of an intro, but this is probably one of the smartest guys in our age group that I think we've ever spoken to and had the privilege of listening to. So yeah, it's, it was mind-blowing. Probably safe to say um, smartest guys we've spoken to of any age group, not not just ours. <laughs> True. Um, <laughs> so the person we're talking about here is his name is Ali Hamed. He's um, based in America. He's our age. Well, he's actually younger than you, Bryce, but <laughs> we won't rub that in too much. Thanks, Ali is 26. He's the co-founder of the venture capital firm CoVenture, which he started when he was uh, 20 or 21. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah. What are we doing with our lives? Yeah. Don't want to know. <laughs> so the reason we got Ali on the show is we, we've heard a bunch of interviews and we've read some of his work and he just has a real clarity of thought around a lot of really interesting topics and he's built CoVenture. Well, he and his team have built CoVenture from a venture capital company into a company that also lends against unpriced assets. Uh, so, you know, provides debt financing for all these strange things like fresh produce receivables and stuff like that. And then uh, notably, he also runs a crypto index. So really living up to the millennial stereotype there. Mm-hmm. He, he's a really smart guy. The way he articulates his thoughts and the way he sees the world is is really interesting. And um, I think, yeah, I, I really enjoyed just listening to him talk. Yeah, absolutely. Don't get put off by um, any of that if it sounds a bit confusing and over your head because there's some great messages in in there that Ali talks about everything from what it was like founding a, a company and being unsuccessful and, you know, living almost on the streets back in his days in college through to now obviously being quite a successful entrepreneur and one that many people now come to him for his views and comments on things. And yeah, Ren, as you said, some incredibly interesting and um, I would say contrarian views on a lot of things that um, impact not only investing, but sort of the, the entrepreneur mindset. So yeah, it was uh, fascinating to listen to him and quite a privilege to talk to him, to be honest. Yeah, so without or with one slight matter of further ado, um, if you haven't signed up for Thought Starters yet, I would highly recommend you do. It is uh, a few, uh, sometimes more than a few, interesting <laughs> and insightful links in one email in your inbox every Monday morning. Great way to start the week, great way to procrastinate at work. 
And while we're on the plugging bandwagon, oh, here we uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we kicked off our Instagram, the millennials that we are. We've, we've left our Instagram account way too late. Uh, well, not too late, but we've I haven't put any time and effort into kicking it off, Ren. So we thought last weekend would be the weekend to do it. So head on over to Instagram if you have it and follow us at equitymates underscore investing podcast. Uh, we'll be bringing you some cool content. Hopefully daily, we'll see how we go and we'll be teaching you a few things along the way. So another way to uh, keep in touch with us. Yep. Just like millions of Europeans and young people, we're switching from Facebook to Instagram. Come join us. Get on board. (laughs) All right. Without further ado, here's Ali Hamed. So Ali, thanks for joining us. To, to start us off, we heard in an interview you say two-hour movies are completely dead. So to kick us off today, um, why, why do you think two-hour movies are done? Sure. So kind of a funny place to start. Um, you know, I kind of <laughs> think of two-hour movies as like the modern-day sonnet, right? So like everyone like growing up, um, you'd have to read the Shakespeare stuff, which like everyone told us was good, but like I never was, had an easy time getting through it. And it was basically these stories that were built within a structure. So you had like 10 syllables per line or whatever it was. And you'd try to figure out a way to make stuff rhyme and eventually put together a story within it. And eventually books became a lot more flexible. Uh, some books were long, some books were short, sentences had a different sil- amount of syllables in them. Um, you know, some words started with the word, uh, so some sentences started with, with the word and or but. Um, and people started to break more and more rules of grammar and structure. And the reason is structure started getting built around the story rather than the story getting built around the structure. And if you think about like movies, it is insane that every single story has a two hour story arc. And it used to make sense because you had movie theaters and like you'd want to pay $10 for a two hour experience. And it would suck if you spent $10 on a 30 minute experience. Um, and like same with episodes on TV where like you had to have ads and you had to have everything fit within something else. But now that everything's online, there's just no need for it. And so like I think you're going to see shows like Big Little Eyes, which had, you know, um, big screen star power on a show end up becoming the new norm, which is it's the right amount of time to sell to, to tell a certain story. What I think that those shows still get wrong is that every single episode is the same length. It's crazy to me that every subplot is the same length. Um, it would be insane if you read a book and every single chapter was 15 pages or 14 pages or 20 pages or 10. You know, you see different chapters with different amount of pages because every subplot has a different amount of time to take to tell it. And eventually, I think you'll end up seeing episodes be different amounts of time. And so, uh, you know, just a thesis around the fact that if we are now paying for our content, right, we pay $9.99 or somebody we know pays $9.99 a month um, for us to have access to this, then the content is made for us as opposed to being made for advertisers or as being opposed to being made for the distribution of a movie, movie theater. And so, therefore, the content will be made, uh, the, the structure that will be defined by the content, and it'll probably be a lot more flexible. Um, and if there ever is a subplot told within two hours, it'll be by accident, not because that's how everything else is done. Nice. It's it's a really interesting thought. And the, the reason we wanted to start there was because, uh, well, and I guess the reason we wanted to get you on the show was because some of the thoughts that you have and some of the interviews that we've heard you do, you have these really clear insights into into things which, you know, when you talk about them are obvious, but aren't immediately obvious to a lot of people. Mm. So... The way we want to structure this interview is, first of all, we want to talk to you about you a little bit and how you got to CoVenture and um, your background. Um, and then we want to talk about sure. the three main categories of um, what you do at CoVenture, which is venture capital, lending, and crypto. Yep. 
to start with um, you and your background and to frame that first part of the conversation, in an interview you did, uh, you talked about a quote from your dad. Some of your friends will talk about things. Some of your friends will talk about ideas. How, how has that informed your thinking and your growing up? And um, can you give us a bit about, you know, sort of where, where what your background is or where you came from? Sure. So, um, you know, I think that comment came because I, you know, I went back home. I'd been in college for a couple of years. I went to see one of my best friends from when I was in high school and I realized he and I were talking, we had nothing to talk about. And so much of our friendship had been built around like just talking about current events, like talking about a certain, you know, practice that we were at or our friend group or who hooked up with who, or I'm pissed at this teacher. I had this homework or whatever it is. And um, so I realized like that that friendship wasn't as powerful as I had thought it was, but there were other friends from high school or middle school or growing up where every single time I'd sit down with them, we would just talk for hours. And it was super easy. And it didn't matter how long that we, had see, we hadn't seen each other. It was easy to sit down and just continue to chat. And I realized, you know, and, and my dad was uh, talking to me and he goes, well, the primary difference between those two different friendships is in one case, your whole friendship is about talking about things. It's gossip. It's a person. It's an item. Um, whereas other people, they talk about ideas, you know, is income a useful thing? Should everyone have a universal basic income? Should we have a democracy? Should we, you know, um, think of this way about a certain belief? Um, and when you end up talking about pe- with people about abstract ideas and you're talking about like ways of thinking as opposed to like the end of uh, the result of such thoughts, you just have deeper relationships. Um, I don't know. I, it always ended up uh, helping me figure out midway through meeting somebody, where was our conversation going? And did I see myself probably becoming very close with them in the future or not? And if everything we were talking about was very discre- discreet, you know, Best case scenario, they'd be somebody I might work with one day or I wouldn't mind hanging out with them if we had a bunch of stuff in common in a group. Um, if we started talking endlessly about like, you know, a certain idea and we would go off on 30 different tangents and forget what the original topic was and kind of ramble on together and kind of have this like almost like intellectual like debate constantly, then that was somebody I'd be like, oh, I actually might become really close to this person. Um, and so that's always just been a good way to fig- for me to figure out as a leading indicator of who I've become close with or not. Um, in terms of where, where I grew up, uh, I grew up in Southern California. Um, I grew up playing baseball. I always wanted to be a major league baseball player, and it, that never actually worked. Um, ended up going to Cornell to play baseball. Um, and then while I was at Cornell, I got into tech um, sort of by accident. Um, you know, I had, uh, was working on a startup, um, and then I got hooked. And so, you know, at the time, being on the baseball team at Cornell, um, doing a startup at Cornell, trying to pass my classes at Cornell, and then randomly doing a bunch of other stuff on campus was just a little bit overwhelming. And so stopped playing baseball, focused more on tech, which I felt like I was better at. Um, and uh, stayed in New York. Um, it was, uh, and, and so, you know, I think it was really great that I started on one coast and ended up in another. Uh, they're, they're two completely different cultures between LA and New York. Um, and I think that's sort of added a lot. So let's, let's move on to that, Ali, because you have a very interesting story um, from how you went from wanting to be a major league baseball player to ending up in tech. You know, we read that at the fir- at the end of your first year in college, uh, you found yourself sleeping on park benches. Um, so can you just give us a bit of context into how that actually came to be? You know, we can imagine it obviously wasn't a pleasant experience, but yeah, how did that happen and, and what was what happened next? Yes, yeah, so... so- it sounds like a lot more like uh, interesting than it was. Um, <laughs> I d- d- did a startup. Um, you know, we raised a little bit of money. Uh, it, it didn't work. After that startup didn't work, I was stuck in New York. 
Um, I stayed with a couple of friends, but I had, you know, I had only been a freshman at college. So I didn't have that many friends I could stay with for very long. Um, and eventually uh, got a job with a business called Chloe Software Fruit Company. Um, and while I was there, I didn't have enough money to make rent or put a security deposit or anything like that down in an apartment building. And so for a certain period of time, I was crashing at a Starbucks across the street, hanging out in Union Square Park for a bit. Um, and, uh, you know, wake up, go to the gym at New York Sports Club, it cost $40 a month for membership. I was like in the best shape of my life because I was very, very bored. I didn't have like enough working hours. I didn't have any friends and so I just hang out at the gym all day and talk to a bunch of strangers um, <laughs> and then go back to work. And it was sort of this like super weird experience. Um, I do remember I was making like, you know, let's call it $11 an hour. Um, and I felt incredibly wealthy because I didn't have any expenses. I wasn't hanging out with anybody who was spending a lot of money. Like for breakfast, I was eating dry cereal. For lunch, I was eating Chloe Saucer Fruit Company. And for dinner, like at the time, Pret would have to throw away all its food for, like uh, at the end of each day because they couldn't sell resell old food. Um, today, I think they donate it, but at the at the time, they were just throwing it out. I was friends with people at Pret, so they'd get like a feast at night because they'd get all their food they were about to throw away. And uh, it was like really, really interesting. And like once a week, I'd go to like a really nice restaurant and eat by myself because I had like two hundred dollars saved up. Um, <laughs> And it was, yeah, just like an interesting experience. And, and then after that, I um, I got really lucky. I got uh, introduced to a lobbyist group called ACT um, by, you know, uh, a postdoc at Cornell who I'd been doing research for. Um, and he he knew that this group wanted like a young internet entrepreneur to go talk um, at a conference uh, about internet governance and like internet governance through the eyes of an entrepreneur. And I was on a panel and Again, people probably thought I was a bigger deal because I was on a panel with a bunch of other people who were bigger deals than I was while on the panel. And then I <laughs> randomly got a couple of consulting gigs out of it. And people, you know, people would say, hey, I was like, hey, I, I'm a consultant because my startup didn't work. I didn't know what else to say I was. And they'd say, great, what do you do? I said, well, what's your problem? They would tell me a problem. I was like, that's exactly what I do. And, um, and then I find someone who actually knew how to do it. I'd subcontract out to work. And that was my consulting thing. And so mm. I did that while I was in college, uh, you know, basically through my almost my whole senior year. Uh, and then, uh, you know, parlayed that into eventually working with, like going to a bunch of the people I didn't work with, um, mm. saying, Hey, I want to start angel investing. They gave me a tiny amount of capital, um, because I had done good work for them and used that capital to start making initial investments. And that was the very beginning of CoVenture. Mm. So that, that's a good point to get on to the founding of CoVenture. The story of you raising your first $3 million round and especially how you got that last 25K is a great story and there's probably some good lessons in there for everyone. So can you tell us the story of founding CoVenture and how you raised that first round? Sure. But first I'll tell you the story of, cause the 3 million was the second round. So every, <laughs> every company when it gets launched always says like, all right, we, we were founded like today. And really they were like founded three years ago, but it's like really depressing that it took that long to get to that point. And so like they make up when they were founded. Um, and we like everyone did, did that. So, um, what we first did is I went around to all those people I'd ever done work with or anyone I'd gone to school with or anyone who ever knew me and like scraped together $396,000. So we had $396,000 of committed capital that we could use to pace off for developers to code for equity. And, uh, it was 396, not 395 because my little and my fraternity invested a thousand dollars. Um, and you know, and then it ended up going from 396,000 to $391,500 because someone who promised to invest $5,000 only invested 500. Like it was really, really desperate, scrappy, like scrappy and like pathetic. Um, so we had that amount of money. And then of that, we ended up coding equity for a few companies that started to do well. We sort of, you know, we um, squeezed it for all it was worth. 
we proved that we could actually go find companies that were interesting, where the founders were good people who actually needed help building their software. And at about that time, um, I, I started speaking with two people. One was a guy named Mike Beller, or he's a guy named Mike Beller, who was the dad of my best friend from college. And Mike had co-founded the business that he had taken public and was a consultant still. And I would, you know, stay uh, with uh, Morgan at their house and, um, you know, when, whenever I was in, in New York City and uh, he would always give me advice. And I asked him, hey, Mike, would you ever consider working with us a day a week as a venture partner? And he said, sure. And there's another guy who had spoken in one of my classes at Cornell named Thatcher Bell. And he's like one of those big shot uh, alumni who you'd suck up to whenever they came. And I'd shove my business card into his hand and, you know, ask him for his and email him every once in a while. And eventually we were at South by and we were getting drinks. And, uh, I, I've found that people think that I'm smarter when they're drunk. And so that's like the story I'm going to go with is we were talking. I said, Thatcher, here's like the investments that we've made so far. And, um, he was sort of looking for the next thing. And I said, Hey, how about you work with us a day a week? I've got this other guy named Mike Bella working with us a day a week. And his resume is really impressive. How about we all work together? And Thatcher would have never joined me if I wasn't working with Mike. Mike would have never joined me full time if I hadn't been working with Thatcher. Um, and so the two of them wanted to work together and I happened to be the person in the middle. And I then used their two resumes to go raise $3 million. And the first <laughs> person I talked to was this person who was like a well-known venture capitalist. And I said, hey, I'm raising $3 million. If I raise $2.975 million, will you invest 25000 as the last amount of money I need? And he said, yes. So I was like, great, you're in. And so he was sort of like, kind of like the last check-in, but really the first check. And then I was like, hey, like I would go all these people, hey, this famous VC is in my round. And um, a lot of people who didn't know much about venture capital or weren't like didn't know enough about me, they use, you know, signal or second principle thinking to make an assessment, right? So like if you were to invest in a biotech company, you're not an expert in biotech, but it turns out that all the smartest people in the world who did biotech were investing, you may invest, right? And that's how people often judge VC companies. Is they say, look, I'm not a venture capitalist, but if all the best venture capitalists are investing, I bet I should too. And so like that was sort of the basis of why people gave us that the, the 2.975 million after the first person gave us 25,000. And so that is the really long version of how we got three. <laughs> so Ali, I think now is a great time to, to let our listeners know how actually how old you are because it was when we found out it uh, blew us away. So can you tell us how old you are? Yeah, I'm 26 and a half. <laughs> yeah, 26 and a half. <laughs> Quite inspiring really. Um, and I want to I want to take that back a bit um, and sort of tie it into your age. Obviously, CoVenture is not the first company that you've tried to um, start, and and CoVenture is is successful uh, to date. But some of the previous ones hadn't been so successful. And and you speak of the fear of failure being a strong driver for you, and and we all know that um, the fear of failure is something that often holds a lot of people back. So I'm I'm wondering how did you overcome the fear of um, your first businesses not succeeding and, and have the, the guts and, and I guess the belief in yourself to start CoVenture? Is there any sort of main lessons that you could pass on to those out there that are, uh, that are in a similar position? Well, so, you know, starting a company is a really um, horrible experience, primarily because of the stress that comes with it. And stress, um, like I have like a complicated relationship with it, but I, I'd say it's net net a positive force. So, you know, stress in my world is wanting something really, really badly and being afraid of not having it. And the fact that like someone can endure stress means that there's something they want really badly that they're afraid of losing. And so if you're never stressed, it means you never wanted that thing. So in some ways, stress is a total blessing as much as it is a curse. Um, and starting a company is really scary because, you know, you're basically giving, take, convincing all these different people around you to bet on a thing that you're about to build. 
and to give up their opportunity cost and invest that opportunity cost and invest, you know, a risk for their family and their future and everything else into joining the cause. And when a business doesn't work, um, it's a heart wrenching experience, partly because um, you were in, you other people took their fate, put it in your hands, and then you were you have you were in control, and then you let them down. So you know, doing a company that doesn't work is is really really sucky. Um, but with that being said, like when you're starting a company, you really shouldn't feel like you're asking people for a favor. Um, and if you get to the point where you feel like taking money is a scary thing, you shouldn't do it. Uh, if you get to the point where you think trying to convince someone to join you is a scary thing, you shouldn't do it. You should be at the point where you have so much confidence in what you're about to build. And sure, you know there's risk and you know there's things that may go wrong, but you should have so much faith and so much confidence because you've diligence the opportunity, you're so desperate to make it work, work, et cetera, um, that you think people are idiots for not joining you. Um, you know, by the time we get to the point where we're making an investment, we are so confident in that investment that if I talk to you and I say, hey, I, I think you ought to invest in this, and you say no, I think either A, you weren't listening, B, you're a fucking idiot, or C, you're a liquid. <laughs> um, like, there's nothing in between. And, you know, I, so I, I actually view it as I'm giving someone else a favor um, for investing in something, not like I'm asking them for a favor. Uh, and then it's really good because otherwise, if, if somebody gives you money as a favor and you're like, you know, enslaved to them, and, and that's never a good feeling either. Um, so, you know, we got to the point where we were so convinced CoVenture was the right thing to do. Um, that we went out and it wasn't a like, oh my gosh, I'm consciously like doing this scary thing. It was like, it, I can't think about anything else. I can't dream about anything else when I'm with friends or with family or in my spare time, I have trouble making small talk. So all I want to talk about is this thing. Um, it's that feeling of obsession. It's that feeling of like, you know, just total like despair when you meet somebody and you realize that they don't feel as strongly as you do about anything. Um, so yeah, so it's just, you know, you have to do it. So, Ali, at this stage, you've founded CoVenture, you've raised some money, and one of the first main insights that you had at CoVenture was that for early-stage startups, it was easier for them to access capital than it was to access technical talent. What, what did that insight lead to, and how, how did that shape CoVenture as a business? So, um, the, the thesis was super simple. It was, if I give someone, you know, $25,000 of cash, they'll give me a really, really small part of that company. If I code for equity, I get a much larger part of the company. And if you get more of the company for the same amount of output, you're basically investing a lower valuation. And if they're willing to give you more for services than they are for cash, it means they need the service more than they need the cash. It's like a really, really simple thing. Um, and so we were investing at really low valuations. And then if we were coding the company or coding the app for the founder, it meant that we didn't just need to invest in technical founders. We could invest in anybody. Two and a half percent of the U.S. codes or can code uh, or the software engineer some type. That means that 100% of venture capitalists were targeting the two and a half percent of the population that could code. And we were like the 0.001% of venture capitalists that were targeting the other 97.5%. That felt like really good math. So we could target more people at a lower valuation. And we felt like, okay, so if we're targeting people whose strength is sales, they had a higher chance of being able to go to market. And if our strength was coding, we knew that with almost complete certainty, we would actually get a product to launch. And so we were making um, lower valuation investments and probably higher quality founders and making the companies less risky. And we're like, okay, that sort of works. That's a really good like approach to invest in. Um, and that was like the thesis. So you said that you got some pushback in the VC community for this, you know, prioritizing domain expertise over technical founders. What what was that like as, you know, a 25, 26-year-old starting your first fund and um, obviously not being very experienced in the industry and getting that pushback? And, and does that pushback still exist today? 
No, well, so, so actually it was when I was 21, 22, and it was hard <laughs> to break into venture because, you know, uh, venture was just getting really cool. Um, and like any venture capitalist, like was sort of hard to get in touch with. And so what I used to do, uh, my first approach was cold emailing people, which didn't work. I said, hey, my name is Ali. I'm going to start investing in companies. I think you should invest in the companies I invest in. And I got like no responses. The second approach was I started like doing research on industries that I thought were interesting. And like I did one on elderly care, staffing, you know, hospitality, stuff like that. And I make, make these PowerPoint decks and then I'd send them to VCs who I could look at their portfolio. And if a VC had made three hospitality investments, I'd say, hey, my name's Ali. Um, I put together this PowerPoint of who matters in the hospitality industry, what the problems are, who I think is going to solve them. Um, one of your portfolio companies is in my PowerPoint deck. And here's 14 corp dev um, people at companies that I think could acquire your companies. Here's how I think they're going to be valued. Will you take 15 to 20 minutes with me uh, of time over the phone so I can talk to you about it? And hopefully you take something away. And so instead of me asking them for a favor, like, hey, can you sit down with me for 30 minutes to talk about my portfolio or to talk about investing, et cetera. Instead, I was offering them a favor of 15 minutes of their time to educate them about something that they were already interested in. And some of them, like, let's call it 10% of them would actually get on the phone with me. And that was great. Um, can I talk to your associate? Because like the partner would never really want to spend that much time, but the associate like had more time on their hands and would have to do it because the partner told them to. And so then I started talking to that person and we would build this relationship. I'd be like, hey, do you know two other people that like in the world that would be interested in this? And they'd give me two recommendations. If they didn't, what I would do is I'd go through their LinkedIn and I'd write down every single person that they knew that I wanted to know. And I'd say, hey, of these 15 people, can you introduce me to two of them? If you tell me which two they are, I'll draft an email for you that you can just forward so you don't have to write anything. And so they'd say, sure. And so I'd meet those two people. And then eventually I built this like, network of what's called 10 people in venture capital. And then every time I had one of my portfolio companies that wanted to raise, I would introduce them to one of the 10. Uh, or actually, sorry, all, all of the 10. And then of those 10, I kept introducing those 10 to each other. And I'd hold drinks for them. And like I'd pretend like I had this huge network adventure. And so then they started introducing me to people. And like it just became this domino effect where eventually I just like ingratiated myself to people. So that's how I got to know them. They still thought my thesis sucked because at the time, like <laughs> everyone was building sort of this new technology and like mobile was still new at the time or like consumer applications were really popular. So it was really important to be a good UI UX designer or whatever it might be. And so the core competency of a lot of the early companies that were coming out of New York, like AppNexus, MongoDB, et cetera, um, were technology companies. But as more and more companies became tech enabled, it became clear that the hardest part of those businesses was getting a market, not building the technology. And over time, both out of just pure, like just being in people's faces for long enough and the market sort of shifting on us and everything else, things started working in our favor when people started to say, yes, domain expertise is actually more important. Building technology did get easier. It isn't as much of a risk. Um, and you can be a non-technical founder that became less controversial. You've got some serious hustle there, Ali. Um, it's, it's quite impressive. And you've obviously done a lot of pitching to a lot of different people and you in, in your business that you're in, you would also be on the receiving end of a pitch. So I'm wondering for those of us out there who actually dream one day of having the chance to pitch an idea to some major investors, um, what's one thing you need to really nail in a pitch that you think is often overlooked? So um, I think it's like just important to a, uh, I mean, a, a million things. Um, I think one of the things that a lot of people screw up is just the size of the opportunity. And you have to remember that for like a hundred million dollar VC fund, um, you, have to have, you have to be able to pitch them a really big opportunity. Otherwise, they won't move the needle for their fund. So let's imagine, you know, you're, first round, you're pitching first round capital. I think they have a $200 million fund and you're building the next Instagram. And you say, hey, first round, if you give me a million dollars now, I'll give you 
20% of my company. So it's, you know, a million on four pre five post. And then you start to do well, you raise your series A, you raise your series B, you raise your series C, and all of a sudden, you know, first round now, 10% of your company, by the way, first round did not back Instagram. And so this is totally illustrative. But uh, all of a sudden, the first round now owns 10% of the company um, for that $1 million. And then you go public and you sell to, you know, Facebook for a billion dollars. Or sorry, not go public. You sell to Facebook for a billion dollars. Mm. First round made $100 million on your on that 10%. They need to return three times their $200 million funds. They need to return a total of $600 million. They need five more Instagrams. There's just not that many Instagrams. So if you think about how big the opportunity has to be for to move the needle for a venture capital fund um, in a way that matters to them, you have to be building something that could ultimately get to an enterprise value that's very, very large. That's if you want to pitch venture capitalists. Um, the second thing is you have to make sure like the story is believable. And so many people start from this top down level of like, hey, there's like $50 billion to spend in the market. If I only get 5% of them, that's $2.5 billion. You know, the average, like, this is that. The average, this is that. And it's, like, very much like this consulting Harvard Business School type approach. And what people really, really want to see is, like, here's the super big opportunity. By the way, here's a believable story about how I'm going to get through the first 365 days. Um, and then it's also knowing where and, like, what are the biggest risks of the company? So if you're building an enterprise software company, like, the very, very biggest risk is can you actually land a customer who um, incurs customer value? By using your software, they can either save money or make more money. And then the second risk is, would they ever be willing to pay for it? The third risk is, can you build the thing that they want? The fourth risk is, can you acquire customers at a cheap enough um, you know, amount such that you can make more money than you spend in a certain amount of time? Like, And so you have to go through every single thing in your company. And so if you can say, like, look, there's an 80% chance that I can build a thing. And there's an 80% chance that somebody will actually accrete value from it. And there's an 80% chance that they'll pay for it. And there's an 80% chance I can acquire the next customer at a reasonable price. You basically took 0.8 to the power of four, which ends up getting you to a much smaller number. And all of a sudden, you're a company that's got a less than 30% chance of success. And so the more of those risks you can sort of mitigate, make it from 80 to 90%, um, the more likely you are to receive funding, um, assuming that the opportunity is big enough. Yeah, wow. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So given, uh, I'm sure you see, you know, hundreds of pitches a month or a year, there, there must be some particular deals that, that stick in your mind as sort of the ones that got away. Uh, are there any that you really regret passing on or that went on to do really big things? So the company that got pitched, I was trying to remember the name of it, and they ended up raising around, it was like a lot of money at too high evaluation, so we passed. And I haven't heard about it since. So maybe this is an opportunity, but in the United States, medical billing is like a really complicated process that often gets, it goes wrong. And so what the founder was doing is they were going, and this is by the way, three years ago. Um, the founder was doing is, is going out to all his friends and saying, hey, send me your medical bills. I will see if I can make corrections to them. And if so, you get refunded that amount. And you find these crazy amount of errors in how uh, medical bills are being coded. And because it's not like, like the code, like the coding is actually really specific and hard for some reason, because it's American or healthcare system sex. I don't know. For some reason, it's hard. And one of the stats that he gave me in the pitch that I thought was the coolest stat I've ever heard in the world was that like, it was something like 97% of all pregnancy tests are billed to women. And like, mm. obviously, 100% of pregnancy tests should be billed to women. I was like, wow, that is hilarious. Um, and it gave you an idea of like how like effed up the system was. And so if you basically said, okay, like, that's probably one of the medical billing errors that should be less, like, ob more obvious than not. Then that means that like maybe we do 97 or 95% of all medical billings correctly. And if you think about like all the billables in the universe, 
uh, or medical bills in the universe, like what's 5% of them? Can you save a portion of that? That felt like a really, really big market opportunity. We never invested. I still am surprised that there's not a company that does that in a really big way. I would send them all my medical bills and hopefully we can pitch that again. Yeah, wow. Fair enough. So, you know, some of our listeners uh, definitely would want to start their own company at some point. It's sort of the, you know, the millennials dream at this point to start their own company and be their own boss. I thought being a professional e-gamer was the millennial dream now. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe with a business on the side as well then. Um, that is. Instagram, Instagram model slash e-gamer. Yeah. <laughs> slash podcast yeah. host these days. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so, um, CoVenture is pre-seed venture fund. Do you, Just um, for our listeners who might not be familiar with sort of the, the different stages of venture, where, where does pre-seed fit in for these companies and you know as as you get smaller you know seed and then pre-seed but you also get bigger and bigger funds in the big end of town you know things like the vision fund what does that what does that mean for the companies that you invest in and what does that mean for you know getting your getting your investors a return and a liquidity event um sort of how has vc changed in your time so there's a bunch of questions in there. I'll first start with what is Thank you, Pete. Feel free to just pick one if you want. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, I, I'm, I'm long-winded, so I can keep going. So, okay, so, um, you know, a lot of people describe seed as like, oh, it's around between a million and $3 million. Some people describe seed as like, oh, it's your first institutional check from a VC firm. And like, as a reminder, the difference between a venture capitalist and an angel investor is an angel investor is investing their own money. A venture capitalist is investing money on behalf of somebody else. Venture capitalists often act more professionally because they're getting paid a management fee and they're investing other people's money. And so, you know, theoretically, you should be more careful if you're investing other people's money than your own. Um, and uh, I, I disagree with all those definitions. The way we think about pre-seed is you are raising capital to prove whether or not you can build a thing that is valuable to a customer. And the example that I always use is the way to prove customer value is not whether or not the customer paid you. It's whether or not you can uh, track an underlying metric that showed that they saved, they saved money or made money or had a high quality experience. And so I always say, if you go to a restaurant and you get lunch and the lunch is fucking horrible, you still pay the bill, right? Because that'd be really weird of you not to. Um, so that's revenue, but the customer value is zero if you don't eat more than one bite on your plate. The KPI is like, did you finish everything and did you bring a friend next time? Um, and so what we think is we want a pre-seed check to prove that you can build a product and prove that customers are using the product and accreting value from it that's indicative of the fact that they would probably one day pay for it. And then seed capital is to prove that customers will pay for it and that you can go acquire the customers for less than the amount that they're willing to pay. And there's a term called payback period. And what you want is you like if you're charging a monthly subscription of 10 bucks a month, and so that means you're making $120 a year. You don't want to spend more than $60 acquiring those customers because you want your payback period to be like six months or less. Now, let's imagine you you are charging $10 a month and there's literally like 10% churn per year, right? So theoretically, your um, your customer lifetime value is $120 divided by 0.9. So it's something like a thousand bucks. A lot of people would be really tempted to say, oh, I can spend $500 acquiring a customer. That is incorrect. Because that means that you don't get paid back or break even on that customer for five years, which means you're going to have to raise so much venture capital to keep investing in customers before you get paid back that you are just going to be so diluted that no one will actually ever make money. So the seed round is to acquire customers um, and for a cheap enough amount of money relative to the amount that you're, they're willing to pay and they can get paid back within six months. And then your series A is to see, hey, how can I scale that? How deep does that go? Because the first customers are the easiest to acquire. 
And then after that, it gets more and more expensive after you start going after the long tail instead of going after the most desperate people who need to park more than anyone else. And then as you go down the long tail, they spend less and less money on your product. And so that's how we differentiate between the three stages. Okay, so that's like pre-seed versus seed versus that. In terms of SoftBank and what's happening in the venture market, you know, the venture market, like, I mean, a million things are happening in the venture market. Let's start with pre-seed versus seed. Um, so pre-seed used to never be a thing. What used to happen is you'd have these like thing, people called super angels who would write a ton of like 25 to 50 to $100,000 checks. They'd write 12 to 20 of them a year and they would all get together and fund a deal and the company would raise half a million dollars in total. And then you had firms like First Round Capital, whose first fund was like $7 million and SoftTech, whose first fund was like $5 million and all these really, really tiny funds, write these $250,000, $500,000 checks, et cetera, and lead seed rounds. What happened is those funds were either good and they went out to their LPs and their LPs said, hey, don't change what you're doing, keep raising, uh, doing seed. And those VC firms would say, okay, well, we're going to write bigger checks and wait till companies get later stage, but we're just going to keep calling it seeds and people keep funding us. And then you had all these angel investors who were either good um, and join VC firms or bad, run out of money and stop angel investing. So there's a huge empty space of companies who are trying to raise that initial capital to build a product for customer value. Those rounds happen to often be less than a million dollars in size. And so now you had this new asset class of pre-seed where you have people like Charles Hudson and Nick Churls raising Notation or um, Precursor. You have, you know, uh, Rising Tide, you have um, K9, you have like all these new firms that have been set up, Char uh, Brooklyn Bridge Ventures by Charlie O'Donnell, all these new firms that are now doing this new thing called pre-seed, which is basically what seed used to be. And so that was like one of the new changes in dynamics. Um, the other change is that all the best firms started to get really, really big. Because if you're a good, like, basically every LP will say, oh, I've heard that there's power law and venture capital, where, like, if you're Union Square Ventures, you're going to keep getting all the best deals. And it's really important to either be as an LP in benchmarking, Square Ventures, Sequoia, et cetera. And so all the LPs would flood to these managers. These managers have infinity access to capital. And you start seeing these massive, massive firms getting raised. So Lightspeed raised a huge fund. General Cows raised a huge fund. Sequoia is raising a $8 billion fund. And you have SoftBank. Um, the, the weird thing about SoftBank is they became so big that they basically go to companies and say, look, um, here's half a billion dollars um, and you have to take my money. If you don't take my money, I'm going to give it to your competitor. So they had like this total monopoly in the market. Um, and then they were all often investing like, you know, I haven't been in a deal with them, but like I would be really nervous that they're investing on these like preferential terms. Um, and so all these other big VC firms are starting to raise bigger funds to make sure that SoftBank can't totally control the market. Um, and so, like, you know, I think that that's probably had an impact. Um, and, and the other thing that also, is these, as these rounds are getting really big, there's just becoming this big misalignment between founders and the VCs. And so we had a portfolio company and the company is doing very well. And they had and they grew like three times and only spent only they only spent a million and a half dollars. So they had a like they were not burning a lot of money. They were growing really fast. They're doing very well. And they had the opportunity to go raise a 20 million dollar VC fund and we, or VC round. And we said, look. You know, if you raise $20 million now, you've already raised like nine. So if, you know, you're going to have $29 million of preferred stock on top of you, if you ever sell your company for less than $30 million, you get nothing. If you build a $20 million company, that's a really valuable thing and you're going to get nothing for it. And so you have to really believe, like, do I actually need this money? Do I want to put preferred stock on top of me? And like, the answer is not always yes. And so as these funds get bigger, they get more and more forceful about writing really big checks. And it's not always healthy for the alignment of the value in the company. So those are, you asked a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> you, you did well to answer them all though. So well, <laughs> well done. <laughs> the reason I asked, and yeah, sorry for asking so many, was because as companies can just continue to raise bigger and bigger rounds, 
does that does that make it difficult for you because obviously they're not getting bought out they're not doing an ipo they're not doing anything like that so it sort of delays you returning money to your investors does, does that does that make it difficult so i think in the short term it makes it difficult and then eventually markets get more efficient and so, so absolutely right so like as an early investor it used to take you know five to seven years for a company to go public now it's a much different timeline closer to 10 years you know and it's important to remember like Microsoft went public, I think at like a $400 million valuation and Amazon went public at a $300 million valuation. It's like a crazy, crazy thing to think about. Um, and Google is something in that neighborhood as well. And that was like a really big deal. Um, and so the dynamics have very, very much changed. I think that that will get fixed. And I think that'll get fixed via a couple of things. The first is, um, you know, as these other mega VC funds get bigger and bigger, it's so important that they can deploy large amounts, large amounts of capital where I think secondaries and early VCs, slightly later VCs, will become more common, and that'll be a new common way to get out of rounds. Um, I think in, like there might be some weird terms that come out of that. Like I can imagine a big VC fund will go to a small fund like ours and say, "Hey, um, you know, I know that you need to get out of this deal. I'm not willing to buy your shares at market rate. I'll buy them at a 20% discount, and you can either say yes." and you get liquidity or you can say no and your LPs will be pissed at you. So I can imagine that being one of the dynamics that happens. The other is um, I think eventually we're going to have security tokens that offer a means of liquidity. So, you know, we have all these crazy like cryptocurrencies and security tokens or commodity tokens, utility tokens, whatever the hell we want to call them. Um, and eventually what's going to happen is people are going to say, hey, all a security token really is, is it's a common share stripped of its governance rights, stripped of its information rights and given better transfer rights. And so what we should do is we should price it as a discount to common but offer it a liquidity premium. So it'll end up trading similar to common. And so what will happen is a seed investor will have like series seed preferred, which has a one X liquidation preference. Uh, they'll really need liquidity. The, the founder of the company will go to that seed firm and say, Hey, how about this? I'll take your preferred shares. I'll turn them into tokens. I'm going to strip them all the liquidation preferences and rights, but that way you can now sell them. And the VC will say, well, I can either take a markdown, but then sell my shares or I'm going to keep it and then keep the liquidity. And I think those will be some of the evolutions of the fact that people don't go public as much anymore. And security tokens may offer a middle ground between being a private company with no regulation, et cetera, and a public company with too much. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll get on to crypto in a minute because um, I know CoVenture is doing some interesting things in that space. But just a, a couple of final questions on venture. So you have this 20th employee test and it's basically a way to test if the 20th employee will be able to sell whatever the company is uh, is trying to sell. Can you explain what the test is? And um, as CoVenture grows, do you still try and do it before you invest? Sure, yeah. So basically what will happen is um, when we're doing diligence with a company, whenever we possibly can, we'll say, hey, if you, I'd really love it if you can tell me how to sell your product. And then while I'm doing diligence on you, I'm going to go try to find a potential customer for you. And I'm going to try to make a sale for you. And that way, if we're getting serious and diligence with somebody, we're going to take a lot, of, a lot of their time. We want to try to add value. And so if we can make a sale on behalf of the company, even if we end up passing, but we made a sale, they're like, wow, talking to CoVenture is really cool. They didn't give me money, but at least they gave me a customer. Now, if we can close a sale, that's like a really good sign. We basically did our own diligence because we took a product. We looked to the market to see if the customers were accessible and whether or not they would buy it. And if we were able to make a sale, that means the company's probably able to make sales. That might be a good investment. If we cannot sell the product on behalf of the company, that's actually a yellow to red flag. And the reason is, you know, if it, if we rely on the founder to make every sale, that's not a scalable company. We want to see if the 20th employee of that company can make a sale. And because I'm a, like a douchebag and a narcissist, I think that I'm better than the 20th employee uh, of that company. 
And if I can't make a sale, then neither can the 20th employee, either because nobody actually wants it, the customers are too hard to access, or because the founder isn't good at teaching people how to make the sale. And so that's more or less our 20th employee test. And how often does that uh, rule out a number of the companies that come to you? I mean, we don't do it's a really time consuming thing, right? So we only do it with some of the companies that we start to work with. And by the time we're at that level, you know, it's, it's a lot. It's, if we can't find people who are really excited about a business and we can't sell something to them, you know, that means that uh, either the founder has something super, super special where like they can get access where we can't um, or uh, it's probably not worth investing in. Mm. Well, speaking of founders, I imagine in pre-seed, you know, you're investing more so in, in the capability of the founder than the business at that stage itself. So can you give us an idea of what your ideal founder sort of looks like? I imagine obviously it changes, um, but are there major characteristics that you look for in a founder? So um, we definitely don't have any uh, um, characteristics that we physically look for. We invest in founders of all shapes, sizes, colors, and genders. <laughs> but, um, but in terms of characteristics that we have identified as um, important when trying to make an investment, um, the, you know, we often talk about the type of person who just surrounds himself by amazing people. And so there's the cliche, be the average of the five people you spend the most time with. We're absolutely obsessed with that. Um, you know, we want to re- like find a person who everybody that they're close friends with, the people that we know in common, everything else, they're completely excellent. Because it's those people who will be able to access capital, access customers, access great employees, et cetera. Um, the second thing is like we want to understand who those people are in, in their lives. So we want to see that they've been excellent at everything they've ever done. Um, were they the smartest kid in their high school class, wor- world ranked in a sport, um, incredible at whatever their, their last job was, and doesn't even have to be related to the next thing they're starting in many cases. It can be just like they were an Olympic qualifying marathon runner. You're just like an effed up individual in a very positive way if you can run a, a marathon in it like that, you know, under three hours. Like yeah. there's just something insane about you that'll probably give you this insane mental quarter too when going out to start a company. Um, we want to see like that magnetism. Um, you know, I think that different founders have different strengths. There's founders with incredible intellectual horsepower. There's the type of person who everyone always seems to want to do a favor for. You know, you've probably experienced this thing in, uh, where you've met somebody and everything goes right for them. Like they always get lucky. They always get a favor. They always get something they don't deserve. But like eventually it happens enough times with somebody where like it's probably them, not just luck. You know, there's the inverse where you probably have somebody you're close with where they're smart, they're hardworking, they do everything they're supposed to do, but they always don't get lucky. Eventually there's a reason they're just not getting lucky. It's not the rest of the world. It's probably them. So we look for people where like their life just seems to keep giving them breaks. Um, and it's a whole host of things. It's everything like how they present themselves. Like when they email us, do they give us three available times or do they say, Hey, Ali, when can you talk next week? You know, do when they send us a PowerPoint deck, like is everything perfect? If they're a consumer company and they send us a PowerPoint deck, that's ugly. That's insane. That would be an insane thing to do, right? <laughs> like we want to see that you're like a high competency level of the things that you're supposed to be strong at. Um, you know, so it's just, it, it's hard to sort of encapsulate in one answer. Um, but this is some of the identifying characteristics. So Ali, let's let's move on to the next thing that you started under CoVenture, which was the uh, the lending side of the business. So, can we start with how that came about? How a venture fund also gets into the debt market, and also um, if you can talk about how you focused on unpriced assets rather than mispriced assets. Sure. So um, we had a couple of portfolio companies in our venture fund. 
that were alternative lending platforms. And as you'll probably remember, version 1.0 of these online lending platforms was basically companies like Lending Club, Ondex, SoFi, Prosper, businesses like that. They were taking loans that banks used to make offline and putting them online. Um, instead, what we want to do is find technology companies that were using their technology, technology to invent a new type of credit. They were just doing something completely new and different. And we could get a really high yield, not because we were in, investing in or buying a, a mispriced asset, but because it was an asset that had never been priced before. And a completely unpriced asset is the type of thing that we feel like we could usually end up on a higher end of the yield curve than we should have. Now, um, and, and our thesis is like super, super simple, just like everything else we do, which is like we look for companies that have invented a new type of loan where we can get a way, way higher with a market yield and a really, really low default rate. And we understand why. The second thing we look for is companies that if everyone else in the world found out they were doing something, um, it wouldn't matter because their yields would stay high. So for Lending Club, for example, they were making unsecured consumer loans online. That was actually a really good idea. But then everyone else in the world found out about it. They started funding those loans. And um, and, and, and basically, the yields came down and got compressed because of it. Um, and And because it just wasn't that defensible. We found three ways that people can keep their loans high uh, or their yields high, even if everyone else finds out about it because it's incredibly defensible. And the first is they have high switching costs. So if you are a lender and you can integrate with like the point of sales or some sort of proprietary distribution channel and make a loan to people who no other lender could ever reach, that's a way. And basically you can integrate yourself with that origination point and just like any software as a service business, um, it takes a huge amount of switching costs to rip you out of the ability to originate a loan. The second is uh, observing data that no one else in the world can observe. Um, so if you have technology that is put in a location or in a place or, you know, for some reason can identify if let's imagine I'm running to a person and I can un identify how good of an employee they are, their likelihood of getting laid off and the credit risk of their employer. That would be a way to make a loan to a person on the credit risk of their employer. Um, that's a new data set that other people would be able to reserve. And the third is if the lender can effectuate the outcome of the borrower. So as an example, imagine Amazon was lending to one of its vendors and the vendor started becoming late on a, on a loan. Um, Amazon could then put that vendor on its homepage for five minutes, flood it with revenue, make sure they were current again, and, um, and, and make sure that no matter what, the default stayed low. Um, so we look, so what we did is we started making venture capital investments in some of these companies. They would then come to us and say, look, we don't want to use our equity capital to fund these loans. Could that be capital inefficient? Could you give us our first debt capital and either lend us the money, set up an ABL facility with us where we take the receivables, put them in SPV and you lend against the SPV or buy the loans whole from us um, so that we could go make those loans? And we said, yes, we went out to our VC investors and said, hey, um, it'd be great if you gave us capital to do this credit deal. They said, OK, because they like the credit. And then we started building that into a business and we became known for being a company that would make both venture capital investments and debt investments. Ali, I'm, I'm conscious that we've, um, we're ripping through our time. So I think every, all of our listeners want to know about crypto. That's sort of all that was on their <laughs> mind for a long time. So let's, let's get to the, uh, the buzzword of the, the day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard you frame a discussion of crypto by telling the story of fiat currency, and I think that's a great way to frame uh, any discussion. So, can can we start there? And can you sort of sure. quickly tell that story? Yeah. So, so basically, when Bitcoin or you know Ether or Ripple were becoming popular, I was like, oh, I wonder if this will replace currency, or I wonder if it'll ever be a currency. And like, if you're one of those people, you're an idiot. No offense. And so, um, <laughs> and the reason is because like. 
money is like this really powerful thing. And everyone always thinks of like money as an invention to like help liquidate barter systems or like get us away from the barter system. And what it really was is it was a way for governments to settle social obligations between the government and its people. So what used to happen a long time ago is like kings and queens would provide services to their people. Like they would pr protect them, they'd give them food, they'd give them land and all this stuff. They're like, you know what? I kind of would like to get paid back for this. And so I'm going to create this thing. Let's call it dollars, right? Because I'm ethnocentric. Um, I'm going to call it dollars. And uh, we're going to say at the end of the year, we're going to charge something called taxes. And you have to give us some of those dollars at the end of the year. Um, and uh, the way we're going to distribute them is we're going to give them to our knights or employees of the, of the government. And you have to figure out how to give stuff to those knights. So then they give you dollars so you can pay your taxes. And if you don't pay your taxes, I'm going to fucking kill you and your ch children. And that was like super motivating. Right. And so people are like, all right, I'm going to like give all my grapes and like wagons and food and stuff to the knights. And everyone wanted to be a knight because they were getting like money, which then meant they got stuff. And so it's a great way for the government to keep control of its people, make it attractive to work for the government. And like even today, it's still used this way. And the government, like the government can't just like run out of money, right? We always talk about defaulting governments. A defaulting government is just a government that like needs to pay its debt and has to print so much money that it creates so much inflation that it's not willing to. Um, but like, you know, the, it's not like the government has a certain amount of money just sitting in its bank account. And like when the IRS comes and collects your tax dollars, like, oh my God, thank you God that we got more money. Instead, if you were to take your dollars in a suitcase and bring them to the IRS's office, they would just take those dollars and shred it up into tiny little pieces and like it'd be out of the money system. That's just their way of controlling supply and demand of money. So in short, governments will never let there be an alternative currency because if there was, then they would lose control of their own money supply and then lose control of their people. And you can already see that when you start to see governments um, that are more authoritarian or are more harsh on their people are probably the quickest to crack down on cryptocurrencies because they are very afraid of any alternative currency to their own. Um, so it'll never be a currency. I promise, I promise. And it may only be a currency in a government that's already been overthrown. I can imagine, you know, and like, so like the, the only example I can think of really is like, you know, World War II is basically started over credit. Um, you should, if you haven't read the book, Lord of the Finance, you should. Basically like Germany owed a bunch of money to France. France owed a bunch, uh, owed a bunch of money to the UK after World War I. The UK owed a bunch of money to the US government. The US government was like totally jerks about it. And they like didn't forgive the loan. And so UK didn't forgive the loan. France didn't give the loan to Germany. Germany had to pay back the loan. So they started printing a bunch of money. It created crazy inflation. There was a revolution. And then like they picked a really, really crappy guy. Um, you know, and so like that would be an example where maybe there would be a revolution and there'd be an alternative money supply that became like the temporary currency. But it's hard to imagine that, that would ever, you know, occur in a normal society. Wow. So then looking at CoVenture's participation in, Christ in Christ crypto today, um, you manage a market cap weighted top 15 crypto index. But the interesting part is that you explicitly do not participate in ICOs. Can you explain why this is your position? Yeah. So um, right now, ICOs just aren't appropriately priced. And so basically, there are a lot of people who went out and started funds. And I said, okay, I'm going to basically take the venture capital approach and bring it to ICOs, which was, I know a lot of people in the space. I was an early employee at Coinbase or something or Ripple or whatever it was. And the pre-sales are hard to get access to. And I'm going to know about them before everyone else does. And the reality is like, there's just not the same amount of scarcity in ICOs as there was in a $1 million seed round. And so playing like the game of allocation and scarcity in like crypto is, I, I think it's a tough analog. 
And so now you have these people who are taking a venture capital approach to buy, hold, and evaluate a liquid security that really isn't traded on fundamentals. Um, and so it's just, you know, like we just never wanted to be in the game of buying something now because we think somebody else on the basis of speculation will buy it later. Um, and so we didn't feel comfortable with that. We are bullish on the space of cryptocurrency. Like, I, I think that Bitcoin, and I'm probably more bullish on Bitcoin than I am the blockchain. And the reason is, I think Bitcoin's a really good store of value. Oh, by the way, I'm bullish on both. But mm. like, I think Bitcoin's a really good store of value and it's already being proven as a good store of value. Whereas, like, I don't use anything that, like, is on the blockchain yet. And so, um, like, I think Bitcoin's just ahead of the blockchain. Mm. Um, and so, or, or just a real ledger technology, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, uh, you know, we are bullish that it is hard to believe that digital assets won't be a thing. It's hard to believe that Bitcoin won't be a thing. It's hard to believe that security tokens won't be a thing. So we want to track the asset class and be a part of the asset class. Um, but we are not like it's it's really hard to say these are the ICOs that are going to win. And it's really hard to think, oh, they're actually priced appropriately. Like, I don't know what Telegram needs $850 million of cash for. Mm. Wow. So, Ali, you've had some of the clearest thoughts I've come across in terms of the utility of tokenization and the sort of companies that could really benefit from it. You know, some of the examples that I've heard you talk about are Reddit, TripAdvisor, and Yelp. And so for our listeners, can you just explain your thinking there and how how these sort of companies really could benefit from embracing crypto? Yeah, so so like these utility tokens, so, so there's all these different types of tokens, right? So like there's Bitcoin, which is like a store value, right? So let's start there. Bitcoin's probably going to be a reasonably good store value. If I were to take Bitcoin compared to gold, um, you know, Bitcoin is more volatile, which, which I think will probably change. It's definitely more portable, right? Like if I said, hey, let's visit each other. How about you fly to the United States with $100,000 of gold in your pocket? You'd probably get stopped at the border. And I probably would do the same if I was going to Australia. My name's Ali Hamid, so I'll get stopped faster than you would. Um, you know, and so, and so, but if I said, hey, travel here with your private key on you, like that'd probably be pretty easy. It'd be risky, but it'd be easy. Um, and then the third is acceptability. You know, if we go to lunch at a restaurant randomly, like that place will accept Bitcoin before it accepts gold. Um, you know, like I can't imagine taking a gold bullion out of my pocket, like shaving off a sliver, trying to convince the person that it was four bucks. Um, and so like for a lot of reasons, I think Bitcoin or something similar to Bitcoin will end up winning. And I think winners, people keep, keep being tempted to pick which one will win based on who has better technology, right? So they'll say, oh, Litecoin transacts more quickly. Uh, Bitcoin cash has more megabit per block. Bitcoin slow, blah, blah. But like we have to remember that like networks never win because of the better technology. Like if I were to say, hey, I want to build the next great Facebook and the reason it's going to be better than Facebook is today is because the pictures will load faster. You'd all laugh at me. Facebook has such a big network and it's the network that ultimately becomes powerful and Bitcoin just has a really big network. So I can imagine it getting overthrown one day, MySpace got overthrown, et cetera, but I think it'd be very hard. The second is, um, is currencies. We've already talked about that. The third is security tokens, which we talked a little bit about, but it's basically just a, a replacement of common stock. And the fourth is utility tokens, which is what you're alluding to. And the companies that will actually be um, good at issuing utility tokens and making sure that those tokens are valuable to the rest of their network are companies where it's better for both the issuer and the buyer of those tokens. So as an example of a bad example, let's imagine an e-commerce company. If I sell shoes online and like I'm Zappos and I say, hey, to buy Zappos shoes, you have to take a Zappos token and like take your dollar, turn it into a Zappos token and then use that Zappos token to like buy my shoes, that's good for me because now I've just figured out a way to raise like raise capital without selling equity. But like it's just a pain to the buyer. The platforms where it's actually going to be really good to have a secure a utility token are the platforms where 
they're trying to use utility tokens to encourage good behavior on their platform. So, you know, you mentioned a few examples of good in the past. I'll give one of those and I'll give a different one. So let's imagine Yelp, Yelp, you know, one out of a thousand people who use Yelp actually comment. You can imagine that Yelp will one day issue tokens and you can only get the tokens if you actually contribute comment or write a review. And then that would make it better. And then you can only look at reviews if you use Yelp tokens. So it's making the readers contribute more content, which then makes the platform bigger. And it's like the self-fulfilling cycle. Um, another example of when utility tokens can be really high quality is when you have a large base of users who have disparate information and you really want them to contribute that information, but it's hard to convince them to. Waze would be another good example. Let's imagine Waze said, hey, the only way that I will tell you if there's a police near you is if you start reporting police to Waze uh, or reporting data to Waze about your drive. So like every single time I report a police officer or a pothole or a car on the side of the road, I get 10 Waze points. And every single time I drive, I get I, I spend a Waze point um, to eventually a Waze token um, to get access to that information. Let's imagine I am a credit bureau, right? Like let's imagine I'm, you know, trying to figure out the credit score of, you know, other consumers. Let's imagine I lend you $100, you pay me back. If I report that, um, you know, to let's say FICO, um, FICO then will give me a token. And every time someone checks your credit score, I will get paid for that, um, right? So that convinces me to provide disparate information accurately to a source so that I then get a token that I get paid for later. Those are the types of examples where it's really network-driven businesses that will be able to use utility tokens best. Such an interesting space. Really looking forward to seeing how this all pans out. So Ali, let's move on to uh, a couple of wrap-up questions. You have previously said that uh, you expect CoVenture to add between one and two asset classes per year. We're wondering what new asset classes you have on your horizon. Sure. So, um, you know, one of the ones that we think is interesting is, uh, you know, equity in digital properties. What I mean by that is like somebody's Airbnb mm. account. So if you are running an Airbnb business, you have a certain amount of properties, reviews, you, you show up on a certain part of the page when people search for you. And so you are a small business on Airbnb. And if you start generating $3 million, $5 million of revenue and half a million dollars, a million dollars of profits, you are probably a valuable business. There's just no buyer for that asset yet. Maybe one day we'll become that buyer. Um, Instagram accounts is another one, right? These are businesses, they do uh, native advertising, et cetera, but there's no like, you know, mature ecosystem yet for buying Instagram accounts. So buying digital accounts could be one. Um, you know, there's, there's interesting twists on real estate that we've looked at. You know, there's, um, certain like investments, like I've talked a lot about trying to invest in the criminal justice system, especially in the United States. We have a really inefficient justice system. Um, we have this, you know, this bail bond thing that's totally ridiculous where, you know, if you get arrested, you can pay a certain amount of money to the government to get out of jail for 30 days and get screwed by all these lenders. Um, so there's certain investment ideas um, that we've been fascinated by. Wow. But in terms of the, um, you know, and then also, like, I think that a lot of companies are inefficiently using their uh, equity capital, their balance sheet. So, for example, let's imagine I was Uber and I was just starting and I realized that I was profitable in New York and San Francisco. But Lyft was a competitor and they were going to start to compete with me. Uber and Lyft both raised metric shit tons of money because they knew it was a land grab. Now, what if as Uber, I set myself up as a holding company and then I had a subsidiary that was in Australia, a subsidiary that was in New York, LA, China, et cetera, and I financed each of those businesses individually. And then let's imagine the New York Uber became profitable, right? Like that business itself ended up starting to produce profits. 
I could then finance that business with debt because I could take a loan out against my profits instead of constantly funding it with equity. So I think so many of these companies have been growing really fast and financing themselves with equity, which is overly dilutive and not capital efficient. You know, SaaS companies. Let's imagine I'm, I'm building a SaaS company. I know that my churn is X. My LTV is Y. I know that it costs X amount of dollars to acquire a customer. Why can't I start financing the acquisition of customers with debt capital? Like there's all these different things that um, I think could be levered up that aren't. And so those are some of the places that we think about. Wow. That's really interesting. There's a, yeah. there's a lot there. We're excited to see what comes next. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, have, you know, we appreciate it. So one other wrap-up question. Um, you talk about your media consumption and you have two rules for the media that you consume, that the agenda must be set democratically and that uh, you have to pay for the content. Uh, that's definitely, that would definitely be the exception to the rule for you know, 26-year-olds these days. So, yeah. so um, why why those two rules? So, um, I, I probably if I've said set democratically, that might I'm not like um, so attached to that one, but I have to understand the context in which I said it, um, and then maybe I'll, I'll give myself the leeway to um, break that because I think it's okay if somebody is setting the agenda for me, um, as long as they're getting paid for it and they're doing it on my behalf, not on the behalf of an advertiser. The reason I don't like reading free content is if I read something for free, it means that I'm not the customer anymore. I'm the product being sold to an advertiser. Basically, the content is just free marketing material that I'm like eating up, you know, not sure if it's true or not. And like the, the media company doesn't care about me. All it cares about is the fact that I showed up and that I got sold to an advertiser. So I like alignment between the writer and who views me as the customer. Um, and then, you know, agenda setting, I think it's... um. Oh, I, I know how I said that. So d- democratic agenda setting. So I, what I really don't like is I don't like how Facebook curates my news. I like the fact like, and then basically if I go on Facebook, it's basically a bunch of people who call themselves socially liberal and fiscally, ca- you know, capitalist, which is like the new cool thing for New York, New York millennials to say. Um, and uh, <laughs> what I'm more interested in is like reading content on Twitter where I can follow a bunch of people who I agree with or disagree with but it's less curation and it gives me like every single voice is given an equal platform. Um, you know, and so that would be sort of how I think about it. Like, I don't, I don't really like the fact that if I go on, you know, Facebook, it's just self-fulfilling stuff that I already believe. I, I, I really, I really value the fact that I can go on Twitter and read a bunch of stuff. Like if you were to go through who I follow, I'm sure it'd be like a bunch of people like, wow, Ollie, like, are you really following a bunch of NRA people? And I'd be like, yeah, cause it's kind of curious. I'm curious here what they have to say. And I think it's really sad that, like, you know, it would probably be really, really hard to be a Trump supporter living in Silicon Valley right now. And am I a Trump supporter? No. Um, but, like, I can still love people who are. And, like, it's shitty that, like, we've become so righteous about the fact that we're, like, obviously right. And we obviously believe in free speech. And we obviously believe in being open-minded and progressive as long as people are open-minded and progressive the same way we are. Ali, you're obviously a very talented and confident 26 and a half year old. And I'm sure there's moments in the day or your week that you, you kind of just stop and think about the world. Um, I'm wondering, is there anything that scares you about the current state of play that we're living in? A million things. I was raised by a Jewish mother. All I do is worry. I was trained very, very well. Um, the, uh, the, the main thing do- then. <laughs> Yeah, we do. Uh, what am I scared about? I'm scared about the fact that people make loans against mortgages, you know, against homes at like 90% LTV. I'm afraid of the fact that people don't 
don't get jobs for a really long time after college. And I'm afraid people still retire at the age of 65 and they live to a lot longer than they used to live. I'm afraid that we can't afford social security. I'm afraid that, you know, um, originators of loans are still misaligned with the buyers of those loans and the borrowers. I'm afraid that, you know, we're going to go to war. I'm afraid that, you know, we won't figure out how to stop global warming. I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid that, uh, you know, like the, the concept of the euro is a crazy one, right? Where a government can go bust and they're not in control of their own currency. Mm. Um, I think the thing that keeps me up at night the most is probably like just people, I don't know, um, probably people's desperation for yield. So people keep saying growth equity and tech is overvalued. And I think that's just because people are so desperate for returns and they can't get in traditional, you know, fixed income markets or yield mm. markets and the types of stuff that we see people do. Like, a, people really, I don't think, mark their books appropriately. And so I think a lot of people think they have more money than they actually have. Um, the other is, I, I think that the liquidity that people think they have isn't actually there. And eventually there's going to be a tightening of liquidity because there's going to be something small that shocks the market. People are going to overreact. Like I was talking to somebody who was at a firm that manages a bunch of ETFs. And I asked them, I was like, oh, you know, aren't you guys afraid of mismatches of liquidity? And the guy goes, no, we're not because... Every single quarter the, or every single period of time, the portfolio manager has to mark every single thing in its book as on a scale like of one to whatever, like how liquid it is. And I was like, that's great. Um, how are they compensated for the accuracy of that market? He goes, oh, no, they're compensated on the return fund. Like, okay, so basically they don't give a fuck about how accurate this like liquidity marking is, marking is. And like we all know it's probably a problem and like no one's doing anything about it. Um, so like those are the types of things that like scare me and could shock the market. And if that shocks the market, that means like, you know, the old curve shifts and that makes a lot of our investments less attractive than they are today. Um, mm. And so, you know, stuff like that makes me nervous. That's a, yeah. it's a very somber note to, uh, <laughs> to, to wrap up. But um, Ali, look, we really appreciate you taking the time. We always end our interviews with three final questions. So um, we'll get, we'll get into them. The first wrap up question is, um, do you have any must read books? Yeah. Um, so I guess the first book, I, so one of the questions I ask people is who's your favorite protagonist from a fiction book? And the reason is it ends up telling a lot about who that person is. It's either someone they aspire to be like or empathize, empathize with. If you ask them their favorite book, they'll often give you, like, they'll tell you the name of a book and then you should figure out who the protagonist is. And they often empathize with that person or end up relating a lot to that person. If you ask them their favorite protagonist, more often they'll say who they aspire to be like. Um, and so, you know, my favorite, um, uh, book is, uh, Fountainhead and I probably aspired to be like Howard Rourke. And I read it before I realized it was political commentary. So don't judge me for the fact that I'm reading Rand. And <laughs> then, um, the favorite, um, protagonist might be, uh, oh man, I'm like feeling like narcissistic if I say this, but PK from Power of One. I just, I have lo- I think that he's like the best. Um, or, um, or Kane from East of Eden. And then in terms of like nonfiction or something, I think everyone should read either The Unbanking of America or Lords of Finance or King of Capital or I don't know. There's too many. Yeah. No, that's true. great. Uh, we'll, we'll include those books in the show notes. Mm. You, you've got good company with Loving the Fountainhead. I'm pretty sure Mark Cuban named his boat Fountainhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think, um, the Fountainhead, I think, also has my favorite protagonist or antagonist of all time, which is Peter Keating. And Peter Keating is like that conformist who like does what everyone else says like you should do because like everyone was using second principle thinking to decide what was right in the world. 
and eventually he loses. And it was like, like such a great irony that like, I don't know. Um, you know, one of the problems I always had, I went to Cornell and one of the problems I always have with Cornell is like, and, and by the way, I love Cornell. It's a great university. Everyone should go there. And if you're a junior in high school, you should apply and I'll help you write your letter. Um, but like one of the problems <laughs> is there's this huge culture of, um, the, the harder something is to achieve, the more, more important it must be. So I'll give you a great example. I was talking to this kid at Stanford and Stanford is objectively a higher ranked school than Cornell. And he was saying, and I was telling him, I was like, oh, all the smartest kids from Cornell want to go work at McKinsey. And he goes, why? And I go, well, it's, the, McKinsey is the hardest job to get out of Cornell. And he goes, oh, at, at Stanford, like McKinsey's really easy. And I was like, God, I hate it. Stanford's always like better than us. And he goes, the hardest job here is Goldman. And my head's like, wait, Goldman is the hardest? At Cornell, it's super easy to get a job at Goldman. Not super easy, but like Goldman recruits really heavily at Cornell. And it made me realize that he thought it was a bigger deal, like a, harder to get into Goldman than I did. And I thought it was harder to get a, a job at McKinsey than he did. And it's not like having a job at McKinsey or Goldman is like one's better than the other. It's just, I just thought McKinsey was better because it was harder to get. And it just showed that like, there's this huge culture. And by the way, going to a good law school, like, I don't know if being a lawyer is a good idea or not, but people view it as a really prestigious thing because it's hard to achieve. And so people like run into these really narrow spaces thinking that they must be the right place to go because they're hard and everyone else is trying to get it. And like, if they achieve it, um, they must have won. When really often, like, it's not the person created the next great tech company because that's really hard to do now because everyone else is trying to do it. It's like the person who create like realizes something else is important or something else is the right thing to do. So importance is not defined by difficulty of achievement. It's defined by like absolute value. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, Peter Keating anyway was like a great antagonist because I think he just a lot, like was like the epitome of that. Wow. I think that's that's some really good advice. Yeah. Something to for people to ponder, I think. Yeah, um, but the the second question is, uh, what are your go to sources for information? Well, your podcast, and then uh, you know, Twitter, and um, you know, um, you know, I think it's like important that you read from practitioners. I really like mem- like the Howard Marks memos. I really like blogs written by either practitioners or entrepreneurs or anyone who writes deeper things than you know, um, you know. It, Anyone who writes blogs other than like, oh, boohoo, VC is hard, entrepreneurship's hard, you know, um, and it actually goes in like the specific metrics of like, hey, these are 13 different companies I've seen. Like, here's like the churn numbers I've seen on some of these companies, um, you know, like a- anyone who kind of goes into the details of the depths. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of entrepreneurs do is like they write these like I'm being really transparent blogs where they say, hey, just publish our numbers. Like this is our, no- we just raised our series A and here's all the numbers from our seed in series A and like just as like a founder to founder if you ever want to see what you have to do you can see what we did and like those founders are only transparent when things are going well and that's just called bragging so like i'm looking for people who are actually being very empirical giving like day-to-day advice very tactical advice and are not like calling themselves transparent as an excuse to brag but are people who like are really giving like uh empirical data yeah, nice one. And then um, the last question, and this is, <laughs> this is normally pitched at older interview guests, but um, uh, we'll ask you anyway. So what, what would you tell your younger self? What, what advice would you give your younger self, you know, investing, business or otherwise? Um, work harder. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can always work harder. Uh, yeah. I think I think if there's one person who is working very hard, Ali, it's the, <laughs> the 26, 26 year old founder of a VC company, a lending business, and a, a crypto fund. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can all, you can always you can always work harder. 
Um, you can always be a little healthier. Um, you can always use like that, uh, the extra Friday night to go to bed a little bit earlier so you can wake up Saturday morning and get ahead of the day. I don't know. You can always work harder. We'll take that on board. (laughs) So Ali, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. When we listen to you um, on uh, Invest Like the Best and and a number of other podcasts that really opened our eyes to wanting to know more about you. So for our listeners out there, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, Do you have a Twitter? Um, We know you blog. Can you just give us some resources for our listeners to delve a bit deeper? Yeah, I, uh, I'm like at the Nomad Hotel two nights a week, probably. So if you see me there, <laughs> say hello. And I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So if you ever see me strolling around. And then in terms of email, my email is ali, A-L-I, at coventure.pc. Um, I respond to basically every email I get. I don't always say that I'm able to take a meeting or a call, but I do respond. Um, and, you know, feel free to, like, hit me on Twitter. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easily accessible. I'm, I, like, I have, like, a lot of time and not a lot of hobbies. So uh, feel free to ping me. Awesome. Uh, again, thanks for joining us. We, we really had a great time chatting to you today. Um, inspiring as always. Um, best of luck with CoVenture. We'll be, we'll be following along. Love, love watching you on Twitter and, and keeping up with your development of thought. And yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you having me and uh, I look forward to being in touch. Hello, mates of Equity Mates. Or I guess that just makes you Equity Mates. Anyway, it's Bryce here. One of the most frequently asked questions we get is, where do we find information about all these stocks and and where's a good place to start? Now, we could do a whole episode on this and we often do touch on it, but the best place to start is by signing up to our Thought Starters weekly email. Each week, we send you some cool stuff that has caught our eye during the week, as well as some more detailed articles on stocks and invested relating content. We also include Basics 101. These are articles tailored specifically for beginners to really propel you on your way. We don't spam you. I mean, we hate spam. It's once a week and there's enough stuff in there to occupy you for a full day of browsing at work. Now, Ren puts a lot of effort into finding quality articles for you guys. So if anything, just sign up so he feels the love. Head to equitymates.com and chuck in your email at the bottom of the page. Equity Mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Take with you, my.